How are you doing, John? I'm good. I'm good. No, it's uh, about to hop on a plane to go to Utah, but uh, kind of enjoying the the summer. How about you? Uh, well, there are two seasons in Wisconsin. There's road construction and winter, so we are in road construction <laughs> currently. Um, Got to milk that window, man. I yeah, definitely. Uh, we can literally go from in May from about twenty below zero at night to eighty the next day, back down to forty degrees for the high the next day. It is it kills the mosquitoes off for a couple of days, but it's it's not great. <laughs> oh no, I hear you. I hear you. It's uh, certainly a, a different world than. Uh, than here in California, but you know it, it toughens you guys up. That's why you guys are who you are. I know. So now, are you based in Southern California then? I am. Yeah, I was born and raised in LA, and I'm still here. Okay. Um, yeah, I saw. Uh, I think I read somewhere that you attended UCLA. Is that correct? I did. Yes. Uh, what was your area of study? Believe it or not, mathematics. I, as a musician myself, I understand where mathematics could come into come into play but uh what i mean what brought what steered you towards music after that education well it's funny it's it's math was actually kind of the fallback i was always a uh passionate about music my mother was a piano teacher and uh, she started me very young at the piano two years old and uh, so i learned the fundamentals very early uh, love music when california kind of cut off the the music funding in schools. She started putting on musicals, and I was Tony in West Side Story, and she was very wise when I was 13 and 14 and wanted to go ride my skateboard and play basketball. She let me quit piano lessons, and then I just started writing songs because it was something I wanted to do, not something I had to do, and, and my, my passion my whole life is, is singing, writing songs, music, and the math kind of came into it as, you know, as a musician, you know, there's no guarantee. It's all subjective that you can make a living at it. So I had the aptitude for it. So the deal with my parents was, all right, they'll support me on the music side, but, you know, get the math degree so when the whole house of cards collapse, I can get a real job. And I think my mom's still waiting for that to happen, but uh, so far, so good. Well, that's awesome. That's a, that's a really great story. And when did you first start writing your own music? Probably like 14 or 15, you know. Um, I remember my sister got a guitar for her birthday, and I quickly co-opted that and, and started writing both on piano and guitar. And then my dad bought me a, for my birthday uh, a reel-to-reel tape recorder. Uh, so I started learning about production and recording and mixing. And uh, I literally brought my recording, <laughs> my recording studio uh, that kind of fit on your wall to, to my dorms at UCLA and... And so I spent more time writing and singing than I did kind of doing, doing schoolwork. But, uh, and then after, after, after I got out of college, I kind of fell in, fell in with some old-time rockers, a bunch of members of Pat Benatar's band. They were all 40. I was 23. Uh, we were doing kind of the, the Bon Jovi rock, and it was a lot of fun. And then a little band called Nirvana came out, and basically the, the hair rock ended overnight, and it put, it put me back at the piano where I belonged, and I just kind of started writing kind of the piano songs that, that I grew up on, the 70s, Elton, Billy, Joni Mitchell, all those kind of things, and uh, the stars aligned, and, and I'm, still, uh, I'm still able to do it. I'm very blessed. 
that's yeah that um you are very blessed uh we we do really love your music and uh i remember the first time i ever heard a single on the air you know in the early 2000s um just you know you can take people to a special place with your music and that's not something that every songwriter can do so kudos to you on that um tell me more about this this metal i, I don't know uh, bon jovi rock we used to call it butt rock um <laughs> you know it just is almost like on the edge of metal like were you writing songs for this were you doing covers like what what was the idea behind uh this group no, we were. I mean, look, I, I, I grew up a rocker, right? I, I, you know, certainly I loved Elton Billy. I loved the 70s. I loved the Beatles. But I also loved Led Zeppelin. I loved The Who. I loved Queen. You know, my favorite two singers were Freddie Mercury and Steve Perry from Journey. So I, I had this, this, this love for, for classic rock. And out of, it's, it's, it's an almost famous story. I was, I was out of college for a year. I was living in these kind of townhouses in Malibu and I would go to the pool every day and, and write songs and kind of live the dream and one day laying by the pool were these two guys a guy named Rudy Sarzo and a guy named Scott Sheets Rudy Sarzo was the bass player for Quiet Riot for Ozzy Osbourne and when I met him he was in Whitesnake at the top of Whitesnake and I was literally the kid in Almost Famous I would go with them to the concerts I'd ride up the elevator with the Whitesnake guys David Coverdale and they were, very, they were very good to me. They would say, all right, you can go in that room, but you can't go in that room. So they, <laughs> they, were, they, they took care of me. And, uh, and Scott Sheets uh, was a former member of Pat Benatar's band. He'd written Fire and Ice. And, and those guys, a lot of the guys who were in her band, were kind of trying to put together something. You know, they were in their 40s. They were still trying to do it. They needed a singer. Here was this young kid. And uh, I was kind of in heaven, and and uh, and we did. We kind of wrote songs, kind of in that genre, uh, kind of that kind of pop rock. Uh, you know, we were certainly not as cool as Zeppelin or The Who, but but we wrote some nice nice pop songs, and um, kind of had a had a manager when we're on the verge of getting a record deal. And then, as I said, when grunge came out, uh, you'll remember that kind of full genre just ended. And as I said, for me, it was a blessing because. Um, you know, what I do is sit at the piano and write songs. You know, the, the songs we wrote were, were cool, but um, it really forced me to, to go back to who I really was. And, and still, even after that, it took 15 years before I had, you know, a song that, that people could hear. So it was certainly a struggle. I was, you know, I like to say I'm, I'm one of those 15-year overnight success stories, but uh, those times with those guys was certainly a blast, and, and it taught me a lot. Very cool. Um, so tell me about Five for Fighting, like the inception. Where did the name come from? Uh, I know you, you know, you were working on, you've been writing songs since you were 14 or 15 years old, but where, where did Five for Fighting come from? And where did you see it going back, what was that, 95, 96 you started as Five for Fighting? Yeah, it was a little later, like 97, 98. Okay. I, you okay. know, again, I've been struggling for a long time and, and um, kind of kept getting the, well, you're a pretty good songwriter, but maybe not a great singer, or, man, you're a pretty good singer, but maybe the songwriting's not there. And, and finally, I, I, I met a, uh, uh, a guy named David Segerson and um, Brian Koppelman. Brian Koppelman was the son of Charles Koppelman, a very, a very successful uh, record maker in the 70s and 80s, kind of an icon. And... Um, and Brian had signed Tracy Chapman, and he was working at EMI Records. 
and uh, the president of EMI Records was David. And David Segerson uh, had produced the Tori Amos Little Earthquakes records. So, you know, two artists that I, I really enjoyed, especially David producing a piano player. And I played them a song called Love Song, a song that would never be a hit on the radio, but it was a poignant song. And, and they said, hey, all right, let's make a record. And so the, the kind of dream came true. And, and David ended up producing my first record called Message for Albert. Uh, but it was the late 90s, as you mentioned, and it was the age of grunge, little affair, uh, boy bands, and the male singer-songwriter was not on the radio. So their, their gimmick was, well, you know, come up with a band name that you can perform under. And I was a little, you know, a little insulted, but, you know, I'm a young songwriter desperate to get my record out. And I just come from a L.A. Kings hockey game. I'm a huge hockey fan. And, of course, in hockey, especially back in the day, there, there were fights because uh, there were protectors, there were bouncers. And there was this guy named Marty McSorley who would protect Wayne Gretzky, and he got in a couple fights. And in, in hockey, if you get in a fight, you get five minutes in the penalty box. They call it five for fighting. So when they said you need a band name, I, I kind of sarcastically spit out, how about five for fighting, expecting them to hate it. And they're like, we love it. <laughs> I'm like, you guys are crazy. Sounds like I should be opening for Metallica, but uh, but off, off we went. Off five for fighting went, and and you know as as stories that are too good to be true uh, typically end. It ended badly. You know, my records closed. My record barely came out, but um, but for my next record, I, I, I got lucky. Found myself on a sub label of Columbia Records, and they they because I'd had a record out. You know, under five for fighting, they said we want to keep that for the few fans you have, and. And once, you know, Superman sold a million records, it was going to be five for fighting the rest of my life. But, uh, you know, it's, it's been a big disconnect between the songs and the songwriter, which for me has is, is been kind of nice because it's really about the music. Um, and it also gets me, you know, into a lot of hockey games uh, these days. So awesome. there's certainly some silver linings. That's excellent. Um, speaking of platinum, how, how did that feel when you got that notification, hey, America Town, Superman, just sold one million copies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the whole thing was surreal. I mean, the, f the first time I heard a song of mine on the radio, you know, I was on the 405 in L.A. driving in traffic, and, and you know, I just kind of broke down in tears, because, again, I'd been working for this for, for you know, 20 years, my whole adult life, um, um, to, to, to kind of make it. And, uh, you know... Then you, then all of a sudden the record company knows who you are, and then you're making a video, and then you know it's the age of MTV, and then people actually start singing your song back to you, <laughs> which was surreal. <laughs> um, and then you start playing these big events, and you know for me, of course, you know it, it went to a completely uh, surreal level playing the concert for New York. You know, all of a sudden, you know you're this this young guy who just got used to hearing his song on the radio and now you're sitting at Madison Square Garden with all of your living icons playing for this kind of historic uh, tragic um, concert you know meeting families that lost loved ones but also seeing how your song made a difference to provide solace to so many people so it was really overwhelming I mean even now it's kind of you know 20 some years later it's hard to to put it into words, but uh, but yeah, you, you kind of pinch yourself, and then you have the reality of 
okay, I'm a one-hit wonder. <laughs> now you got to follow that up. And it, it brings a different kind of pressure once you have some success like that. But, but no, I, I, still, I still pinch myself every day when I hear my song, you know, in Home Depot or at the dentist or whatever. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was great. And it was also great for my parents and my family and my wife who supported me um, so much. It was, it was wonderful to share the success with them. That's great. Uh, has your process for songwriting since your success, has it, has it changed? Have you evolved in some way? Uh, I guess just kind of walk me through your process for writing a song. I think so. I mean, certainly when you have the pressure of like, okay, you may have to go get a real job, you write, um, you write more, you write uh, a little more crafty. Um, certainly the nice thing about when we made records was, you know, you, you kind of have a song or two that you hope can be a hit song that will drive the record and allow you to make another one. But then you get 11, 10, 11 songs to really be an artist. Um, and so you were really, of course, obsessed with finding a song that could be possibly a hit song, but a song that um, was not just regurgitating your last hit song, you know, after Superman, it took me three years to write 100 years because I wanted a song that stood on its own um, that would have hopefully been successful without Superman. But interestingly, you know, after 100 years, when I had a couple songs that, that were popular, you know, the pressure was off a little bit. And, uh, and, and I never quite had songs of that, of that stature. I, you know, The Riddle was a hit, Chances, they were kind of minor hits. But you could also see my life changing through my records, you know, the two lives records, you could tell I had children <laughs> um, because the songs change. They, they were less, and I don't want to say selfish in a bad way, uh, but they were less about me. You know, what was Superman? It's not easy to be me. hundred years is about us and appreciating the moment and, and what, what kind of world do you want? It's, it's about their future. I just love you. It's about children. So you can kind of see my life, kind of change and and of course recently you know the songs I, I write have no interest of being on the radio um, because that's that's hard it, in your 50s to have that but there's songs that kind of talk about issues important to me I've written two songs in the last three years one was about Afghanistan you know eight months ago and one's about Ukraine um, two months ago so I kind of have the freedom to just kind of write what I want kind of like I did when I was 16, 17, and I was just writing for the sake of it and writing to, to you know, express myself. Um, so it's weird. I'm kind of back to that, that mindset, and it, it's kind of refreshing and fun and, and giving me kind of an inspiration and, and energy to, to, to write more and to try to move the needle culturally with songs that will probably never get one spin on the radio. So it's, it's been quite an evolution. Yeah, a person much wiser than me told me once you have children you stop looking up and you start looking down so i i completely agree with you there john um uh speaking of uh let's talk about can one man save the world uh just there are a couple lines in here that just really stick with me and it's yeah but he's got you all thinking because everyone's thinking and in a thousand years will they know your name uh kind of walk me through what Obviously, I know what spurred the writing of this song, but 
you know, where are you coming from with it? What, uh, what, what message are you hoping people get from your words to put into real life? Well, I appreciate you asking about that. I think there's, there's two components of Kimo Men Save the World. There's the one that's certainly recognizing the courage, the strength, the fortitude of not only Zelensky, but the Ukrainian people. Um, you know, what was our first reaction as a, as a nation when Russia invaded Ukraine? It was to offer Zelensky a plane ticket. And, and I think he kind of shocked everybody when he said, no, uh, you can keep your plane ticket. I'm going to stay here with my wife, with my children, very likely be killed in the next few days, but send me some stingers. So I think that kind of fortitude that we hadn't really seen in my mind since Churchill kind of shocked all of us and inspired all of us. Um, so certainly that was one, one part of the song. But to me, the main part of the song is a plea. It's a plea to the rest of the world to get on the right side of history and not let this man and this country be devoured by Putin. Um, yes, the reason I wrote this song is, you know, um, you mentioned in a thousand years will we know your name. Well, certainly not if Putin wins the war, because the winner writes history. And uh, he's got everyone thinking, can one man save the world? And I wrote it as a question, um, because here we are three months later. We still don't know how this is going to end. I could argue we're still not supporting Ukraine in the way we should. We're managing the war probably for him to lose. So it's really a plea to the world to support Ukraine, because it goes way beyond Ukraine. It's about who we are. I mean, we saw after Afghanistan, we all predicted this, that, that Ukraine uh, would be invaded by Putin. And I think if we allow Putin um, to, to, to keep his, his atrocities going and his incursion, Taiwan is next. So I think this is geopolitical, and it really speaks to who we are. Are we going to allow this evil person to invade this free country and kind of in a sense, shrug our shoulders. And I think it goes back to Churchill, one person. One person's will cannot save the world, but courage is contagious. And we've seen uh, very early with, with Zelensky's stand, all of a sudden you see the Prime Minister of Poland in Kiev. You see Boris Johnson walking the streets of Kiev with, uh, with, <laughs> with Zelensky looking for a bar. You, uh, you just see Macron there. And um, I just got back a few weeks ago from Ukraine. And I saw these people, and I sat with them, and I played music with them, and their fortitude um, is incredibly inspiring. So uh, I look forward to sharing this music project that we created in Ukraine with you all in, in the next few weeks. But I do think it's a tipping point in history, and I'm sorry for the long answer, but I think it's, it's, a, it's a critical time, and, and I wish there were a thousand songs about what's going on in Ukraine, because there should be. Thank you. And, and don't apologize. There's no such thing as a long answer. It's, it's nice to get into, it's nice to jump into the mind of a songwriter uh, every once in a while. And we're fortunate enough to be able to speak with you about that. Um, speaking of which, tell me about this tour. Uh, it looks like 16 dates going around the country, uh, coming up to Bayfield, Wisconsin. Have you been there before? I've not. You know, of course, spent a lot of time in Madison, spent a lot of time in Milwaukee, but uh, we're just so looking forward to getting out and playing again. You know, I'm sure you, you hear this from every musician you talk to. Being a musician yourself, I'm sure you know, you know, you don't appreciate what you got till it's gone. That, that, that cliche is so true. And, and uh, 
you know, throughout the pandemic, I was doing some concerts from home, and I've done my quartet tours, and I've done my symphony shows, but I haven't gone out with the rock band in 10 years, and, and I was sitting at home going, you know what, uh, you know, listen to your song 100 years, man, you know, don't wait. And so we decided to, to go out and do a, a full rock tour, summer tour for the first time in a decade, and it's so exciting. I, I can't wait to go out and, and kind of play with my old buddies and, and uh, everybody can kind of come out of the bubble and, and get together. It's such an important thing. I, I think we realize now how important it is to get together in these communal experiences. It's not just about go hear your favorite song from a band. It's like be with people and, and sing and cry and laugh. And uh, so we're so excited, and we're so excited to be coming to Wisconsin. You know, I have Five for Fighting really broke out of the Northeast, um, Wisconsin, uh, Minnesota, Massachusetts. So that's really our kind of home away from home. And, and to be able to come out and, and thank folks for, for kicking this off for me and, and go back to the future is, is just going to be a blast. We are so looking forward to having you up here in the Northwoods. Um, Big Top Chautauqua is a wonderful place. You get to see Lake Superior. You're going to have a great time. Um, I know a lot of people who have come through, such as Willie Nelson, Brandy Carlisle. Um, they've hosted John Prine before, and they have talked about Big Top Chautauqua at other shows that they love to be there. So you oh, are wow. they're going to take great care of you. Um, we're speaking with uh, John Andrasik of Five for Fighting, Grammy-nominated, uh, multi-platinum recording artist, uh, is there a new album that we can expect uh, maybe anytime soon? Anything new that you're working on you'd like to tell our audience about? Well, you're going to see a video very soon, and it might be that I'm in Ukraine with some amazing people, so that, that will be coming in the next few weeks. Uh, we've talked about you know, doing uh, a live record of this tour. I'm certainly back in writing mode, so whether that's a full-fledged album um, with 12 or 13 songs, we're kind of releasing songs as I go. Not quite sure yet. I, I, I'm, I'm one of those folks that love the album, um, love that kind of, I hate the word journey, but you know that kind of ability to have song after song and, and, and take you through a state of mind. But uh, you know, these days with events happening so quickly, you know, I don't have four months to relate, re- release a song <laughs> because you know, uh, with Afghanistan and, and Ukraine, you know, you have to kind of write in the moment. And that's kind of exciting, too, to have songs that, that comment on what's happening in real time. But I do have a batch of songs I love to record, so maybe after this tour we'll get back in the studio. But I'm certainly reinvigorated to make more music. And whether that's albums, singles, you know, television, uh, whatever it is, um, I've, I've kind of never been more excited to, to be in the studio and, and to sing and to perform. So um, there will certainly be a lot of Five for Fighting to come. Well, that's great to hear. And again, Five for Fighting is going to be at Big Top Chautauqua in Bayfield, Wisconsin, on Saturday, July 23rd, with special guests, the Verve Pipe. Uh, John, thank you so much for your time, and uh, it was great talking to you. Keep doing what you do. You're great at it, so please don't stop anytime soon. (laughs) Well, Jared, thank you so much. Look forward to hearing your music. We're all on the same team, and uh, can't wait to see everybody. Boy, not too long. Uh, in in uh, 
up there in the, in, in the beautiful country, and, and uh, now you got me all excited about the gig, so I'm going to let the boys know. Awesome. Well, thanks again for your time, John. Uh, safe travels, um, and we will hopefully talk to you soon, okay? Thanks so much. Take Thank care. you. Goodbye. Okay, bye.